Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, April the 4th, 2023. We're back on the environment. And above all else, we're back on this show. We've talked about it before, how to talk about the environment, how to tell the story of our supposed environmental crisis. Some people see it as an apocalypse. We've done some shows on that. One with a couple of very distinguished and talented uh, writers, Kerry Arsenault and Bathsheba Demuth, both working at Brown University in a new uh, institute designed to help academics tell effective stories about the environment. They're both, as I said, distinguished writers. Arsenal's uh, latest book is Milltown, um, and uh, Bathsheba Demuth has uh, a magnificent new book, Floating Coaster, a very eclectic interdisciplinary history of um, the Bering Strait. Both are rather serious books. And this is, of course, I guess, a serious subject. We also had uh, Harvard academic Martin Puchner on the show asking about how we tell this story of the environment. He suggests uh, in his new book, Literature for a Changing Planet, that we need to read the classics, um, the old academic refrain, of course, whenever there's a problem, go back <laughs> and read some books, especially the more serious, the more academic, the better. Uh, my guest today is also interested in telling stories about the environment, but he has a very refreshing take, at least from my point of view, on, on how to tell these stories rather than doing it in a profoundly dark and serious way he has a new book out it's out this week stay cool while why dark comedy matters in the fight against climate change uh, aaron Sachs um, is a historian at cornell university in ithaca in new york and he's joining us now aaron um stay cool tell <laughs> stories make jokes and a lot of people will say well the destruction of the earth is not very funny. Why would we want to laugh about it? Yeah, some people would say, uh, you know, too soon for comedy about the climate change. But I guess my my uh, retort to that will be like, well, if we wait much longer, it'll be too late. Um, you know, I, I, I just I think a couple of big reasons here for for making jokes about the climate. The first is just that pretty much everyone's depressed about it. Uh, it's it's an overwhelming problem. Um, and now that the vast majority of people accept that it's real, they find it, uh, you know, despair inducing. And so comedy is really good at cheering people up. And the other aspect to this that I that I think is important is quite simply that it's something environmentalists have never really tried before. Uh, we we have we environmentalists have a I think a well-earned reputation for being rather grim and, and self-righteous uh, when talking about environmental issues. So, you know, why not, why not try things a little different? Yeah, you note in the book that the environmental movement is probably the, the least funny movement that has ever <laughs> existed. Um, now, of course, again, very virtuous, self-righteous environmentalists will say, well, we've never been faced with this kind of crisis before, an existential crisis about the planet and all the species, blah, blah. 
but there seems to be something more to it. What is it about environmentalism that makes people so unfunny? That that bring that takes out all the humor, that 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 takes out all the laughter, all the light, all the fun. Yeah, well, unfortunately, it, there's a really long history of doom and gloom when it comes to the environmental movement. Um, starting. Is it just sorry to jump in, Aaron? I sure. get in trouble for interrupting as my way of telling a joke. Um, does it just attract miserable people? I mean, I know a lot of. <laughs> I used to live in Berkeley. It's full of people who are miserable, expecting the world to end tomorrow, and of course, they're all hardcore environmentalists. Yeah, um, it, it, it certainly does uh, attract that type of person, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, it, there's a long history to it. Uh, the, the environmental movement, you could say, got off the ground in the progressive era in the United States, which was an era when the, the main mode was the kind of expose of all of the horrible things that are happening in the world, which was then supposed to lead to positive action to address those things. Um, and it worked fairly well in the progressive era. Um, we got a lot of new public health measures and we got some, you know, we got some national parks and uh, we got forest reserves and things like that. Um, but uh, it only kind of got worse as the 20th century went on and the, the sort of prime example of the most important environmental text, the, the most important expose of the 20th century would be Silent Spring by Rachel Carson in 1962, which is an absolutely amazing and important book. Um, but, you know, when, when you set out to terrify people about um, all of the toxins that are in your environment and already inside your body, then, you know, people are going to wind up terrified. And uh, environmentalists have rarely taken the next step of saying like, okay, we're all overwhelmed by this, um, but now we actually need to get into the right mindset to do something about it. Um, so that's what this book, Stay Cool, is about. Aaron, your, your day job, um, in addition to being this, this advocate of comedy on our apocalyptic fate um, is as a historian of ideas. Uh, you had a book out last year, Up From the Depths, which mm -hmm. has been acclaimed uh, by all sorts Thanks. of people. I think it was a finalist for a major award. It's a book about uh, um, Herman Melville and uh, Lewis Mumford, two classic American, I guess, intellectuals, deeply yeah. serious men. Is this something about America? Aaron, that brings out the serious, especially this rather Protestant culture. We'll get to culture in a minute when it comes to comedy. Uh, but it, are, are the religious foundations of America, does it bring out people's seriousness? Uh, the original settlers weren't very funny, were they? I don't think they told many <laughs> jokes. Um, no, they didn't. Um, but but I don't I don't think there's anything sort of determinative about America's religious history. I mean, we also have a great comedy tradition, um, and you know, I, I, I'm thinking of Mark Twain in particular, who was yeah. a hugely popular writer right around the same time that environmentalists were were developing their serious doom and gloom rhetoric. Um, so I think there's always been space 
for comedy in, uh, in American culture. It's just it, the question of bringing comedy together with environmental topics that's been hard. Is there a cultural element here? I know you note in the book that there are some Americans, uh, African-Americans in particular, perhaps Jewish Americans, although perhaps Jews more broadly, given their history of persecution, that for them, black humor, and I use that metaphorically, of course, rather than literally, um, comes more naturally. You know, when you're being obliterated, when you're, when you're being stuffed into gas chambers or when you're being enslaved, um, humor is the only response, I guess, in some ways, apart from fighting back, which is very hard. Yeah, absolutely, and um, and this is this is what I really focus on in the book is is dark comedy, gallows humor, uh, the kind of humor that has been developed, as you say, by by people who have had to deal with various forms of oppression and suffering. They've been in really really dark places. Um, sometimes it feels like impossible places uh, where it's just you, you can't get a purchase even on the, the persistence that you need to make it through the next day. Um, and some people, you know, dark comedy is not for everyone. Comedy is a very, very strange and unstable genre. People react to it differently. And, and many people find dark comedy to be somewhat fatalistic. But the point that I try to make here by, by looking at the history of people like African-Americans and Jews is that very often um, dark comedy has, has actually been a hugely important survival strategy. You know, um, if, you're, if you're enslaved, uh, there are very, very few options you have for sort of developing uh, the culture of perseverance. Um, it's, it's, it's a horrible existence in a lot of ways. But making jokes about it and making, making jokes about your oppressor, especially the slave master, the slave owner, um, that could be a really good source of uh, morale boost for enslaved people. Um, and the same, you know, I'll, I'll give the, what, what is sometimes seen as the most shocking example, but a really, really important historical example. People in concentration camps used dark comedy all the time. I mean, they, they organized cabarets and variety shows and circuses um, to just help them get through the, these, these really horrible situations that they were in. Um, there was a group of friends in Treblinka who used to say to each other, hey, uh, don't eat too much. We're the ones who are going to have to carry your body out of here, um, which is very dark, but... Um, but but know, also the- pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the purpose is just, you know, to get your friend to smile, take a breath and gather strength to, to get through the day. Aaron, you're a cultural historian. As I said, you, t- you teach at Cornell. Now, one of the things that I have to admit irritates me is there's a truism these days that everyone always says, well, we're living in such dark times, terrible times. Is that true uh, in terms of your historical analysis? Have people always thought they're living in dark times? It always seems to me as if, I mean, compared to, for example, the Holocaust or compared to the history of slavery, the 2020s really aren't that bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Although I do think it's important to acknowledge how bad it is, um, you know, the, the, the global pandemic of the last three years had a huge impact. 
just because of the, uh, the absolute numbers of people living today, um, you know, the, the percentage of people who are in poverty might not be the worst ever, but the absolute number of people who are living in poverty probably is the worst ever. Um, you know, there, there are many reasons to consider these dark times, but as you suggest, Dark times are pretty much the norm. <laughs> you know, if you study history, yeah, I mean, you can make, uh, yeah, you can make. It's it's easy to make joke about COVID, but it, you even know you can make a joke about the Black Death, which really was a dark time, both in in, in terms of cutting off, I don't know, thirty or forty percent of all the people in Europe. Never quite happened in in the United States, at least in terms of COVID. No, absolutely. You know, when when <laughs> two thirds of your neighbors are sick and you don't don't even really understand why, um, that's a dark time. Who was uh, the funny man in the dark, dark uh, in the Black Death? Were there were there comics who uh, who, oh, who performed over graves and? Uh, there definitely were. There were there were um, you know there were troops of uh, of uh, people doing plays. But one of my favorite examples is not from the, the Black Death of the 14th century, but, you know, plague, plague kept on coming back and um, it hit London terribly in 1665. And Daniel Defoe, author of uh, Robinson Crusoe, uh, wrote uh, a book uh, called The Journal of a Plague Year about that year in London. And he walked around the city and he saw that the courts were closed and he said, hey, th this, this is good. At least there's no occasion for lawyers. Yeah, um, well, any any excuse. I've I've been married to two <laughs> lawyers, uh, Aaron, so I, I get that joke. Um, <laughs> do you think that social media? It, it's easy to blame social media for everything, but do you think that because of social media, people think they have a front row seat on history? So every terrible event seems immediate and personal. So you'll hear people say things like, well, I lived through 9-11 and I lived through the Great Recession of 2008, even if it didn't affect them in any way. I mean, obviously, if you're in one of the, the Twin Towers, that wasn't great news. But generally, living through 9-11 wasn't a huge deal. Is there something about how we live these days and how we interact with, with media that doesn't allow us distance? And you need distance for comedy, for humor. Yeah, that is a great point. Uh, the world feels much smaller, much more immediate these days because of the internet and social media. And, and also things get amplified so much, um, as you know, on, on social media. Um, and that's, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I think both history and comedy um, are, are ways of gaining a little bit of distance from your immediate experiences. And that sense of perspective is so valuable, but, but you, you have to slow down a little bit uh, to get it. And, and the world moves so fast right now. Um, you know, I, I just, I think it would be good. For, this is, you know, it's unsurprising for a historian to say this, but like read more history um, and, and also, try to laugh a little bit more, just, you know, take a step back and, uh, and see the humor in some of these dark times. Yeah, you, you're, you're somebody who encourages or reminds everyone that historians are writers, you teach historians how to become writers. I'm guessing, uh, Aaron, that 
your book and this message is designed as much for historians who tend to be a rather serious bunch usually as 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 readers what happens you talked about history moving fast what happens when the history gets ahead of the comedy the imaginary comedy i'm thinking of delilo's great book white noise which is i think the darkest of humor when it comes to the environment um he he wrote it uh back in 1998 it's been made into a movie now white noise featuring uh adam driver very funny uh funny guy funny uh performance but um the world has overtaken white noise uh there was the train derailment in ohio a couple of months ago and there's this cnn headline uh, after a train derailment, Ohio residents are living the plot of a movie they helped make. Um, Delilo called it like he's called so much. Uh, the BBC reports that uh, the Ohio toxic train crash killed nearly 45,000 animals. Not even Delilo could have imagined that. So what happens when history moves faster than comedy, where it's increasingly hard to separate fact from fiction and the comic from the real. Yeah, I mean, I, I think basically the, the answer is that comedy has to catch up. Um, and comedy is, is really good at, uh, at living on various edges. You know, a lot of, a lot of comedians say that uh, the point is uh, to, to, to sort of affront the audience in, in a nice enough way that they still want to listen um, but but part of the point is is just to to shake things up, and um, and you know fiction fiction is really good at looking into the future and seeing different kinds of possibilities. Um, comedy, I, I think, is more aligned uh, naturally with the past, but there's nothing preventing uh, comedic thinkers from you know looking toward the future and imagining all kinds of. Uh, crazy scenarios um, that could happen because of climate change. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's already, the, there, there are already plenty of uh, crazy scenarios to draw on, um, but, but, you know, comedy is very, very flexible as a genre. Are there particular comics that come to mind for you who are beginning to develop a, a humor about this apocalypse, when one thinks about the hypocrisy, for example, of the American bourgeoisie, one thinks of Lenny Bruce, there's a whole tradition of American comedy there. I don't know enough about contemporary American comics or comedy, but I'm guessing there must be some comics beginning to address this issue. Yeah, it's just starting. Actually, one of the best is uh, is English, Marcus Brigstoke. Um, but we have some folks in the United States who are, you know, mentioning climate change every now and then. There's a, a comedian named Bill Burr, uh, who's who's from my hometown of Boston, who who likes to say that uh, a good strategy for addressing climate change would be just randomly sinking cruise ships. Um, so yeah, it's starting. Uh, the the there's a there's a great you might have heard of um, this great activist uh, performance art comedy troupe called the Yes Men. Um, they've done some fantastic bits relating to climate change. One of the leaders of the Yes Men, um, who's who goes by the name of Igor Vamos, um, he he was a guest speaker 
at uh, a commencement at, at Reed College in Oregon a few years ago. And he got up and announced that the college had agreed to divest completely from fossil fuels, which was an absolute lie. But as soon as he said that, everybody in the audience stood up and, and gave Reed College a, a, a standing ovation. Um, and, uh, you know, what do you know, a few years later, um, Reed College actually did divest. Yeah, but that would be, that would have, I mean, of, of all the colleges in America, Reed is the one where that's imaginable, uh, whether yeah, it's true but, or not. But it's been, you know, just a few years ago, it was unthinkable for, uh, for schools to divest. But, but now a huge number have, including my home university, Cornell. The... It's not hard to make fun of the language of the, the soft language of environmentalism. I know you talk about environmental rebranding and eco rebranding. I mean, every major corporation has pages on their website designed to reflect, to manifest their commitment to the environment. Airlines, for example, who have destroyed the environment as much as anyone now promise that they're, they're committed to the environment. It's hard not to be cynical. Should we be more aggressive in exposing the hypocrisy of many corporations when it comes to this stuff? I mean, I think dark comedy um, is a great tool for trying to do that. Satire is, uh, is a key component of dark comedy. Um, you know, the one recent example in the climate change realm is... Uh, you know, the group 350.org, uh, a, a climate change nonprofit, a branch of theirs in Australia did this uh, fake video that um, was supposedly made by a coal company where they just show the executives of the coal company announcing their new official policy, which is called FU. Um, and they go on to explain uh, all of the uh, terrible implications of this policy for you and your children and your grandchildren, because they just don't care. Um, but going back in history, satire um, has been a great darkly comic weapon in, in attacking the rich and powerful. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the example of Jonathan Swift in the early 18th century with his famous essay, A Modest Proposal, um, where, you know, I, Ireland was dealing with a famine and it was, these were, uh, this, this, this was in a way environmental comedy because we're talking about the Little Ice Age, which caused a lot of crop failures in Northern Europe uh, in this time period. Um, and he said, you know, the, the best thing we could do to deal with this famine is uh, have poor people sm uh, sell their infant children to the wealthy as snacks. Um, mm. It's, it's a win-win because then the poor people don't have to support uh, these, uh, these poor children and, uh, and the wealthy also get more to eat. Yeah, I mean, there's always an element of humor in the best political satire, thinking of um, uh, um, Moore's, um, Moore's utopia, utopia from the 16th yeah. century about sheep-eating men. You, in your book, you, you note uh, an interesting uh, play, uh, off-Broadway play, Sea Level Rise. Tell me a little bit about that and what they're doing to satirize the, uh, the, environment, uh, the, the, the environmental catastrophe. A right. uh, what, 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 it, what they call, at least, a dystopian comedy, which I guess is what 
you want every, everyone to think about our environmental crisis? Yeah, um, it, it's uh, that that was um, uh, a, a, that's a nice memory for me because I, I remember just being able to go down to New York City whenever I wanted to right right before that. That was the the late summer before the pandemic started, <laughs> twenty nineteen. Um, but yeah, it's a wonderful show, and uh, it takes place uh, a few years in the future in a town in Florida that regularly floods, and it finally reaches a point where people are going to have to evacuate. Um, and my favorite character from the play is this uh, drunken professor, um, in part just because I, I enjoy hanging out with drunken professors, but this one, she's a physicist, and um, she says, she says, says things like, look, do whatever you want, because none of it is going to matter. This is, you know, this is, it's, it's all over. Um, the climate, climate change has gotten so bad that, uh, you know, there's really no hope anymore. And it's, it's cathartic to hear um, a drunken physicist say that, uh, because that's how a lot of us feel a lot of the time. But then, you know, when she says it in the context of a dark comedy, you wind up laughing and, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's actually turns into uh, not a confirmation of your despair, but a kind of energizing moment where you feel like, you know, um, I'm in a better mood now after, after seeing this comedy and, uh, and I'm ready to do more, I'm ready to act. We live, of course, uh, Aaron, in an age of disturbing political divisions, of inability to talk to one another across those divisions. I'm not sure whether that's always been true. Again, there's an apocalyptic quality to how we think of ourselves. So maybe it's worse these days than it's ever been. Um, but it, it seems to me as if the one area where we can escape these these uh, ghettos, these intellectual ghettos, is the environment. I mean, even DeSantis, who's no great friend of progressives, is reasonably liberal on the environment. Do you think that if there were TV shows or books or movies that were able to somehow capture the absurd humor, the dark humor of our, envir our environmental predicament, that this might help bridge political divide? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I, uh, I, I do think there is potential there. Um, on, on the one hand, I think we need to acknowledge that the people who are still denying climate change at this point are probably not going to be convinced by anything or anyone. Um, you know, some, some people just are, are going to uh, have their head in the sand or or the snowbank or wherever. Um, Other parts but, of their anatomy too, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, for, for the people who at least are acknowledging that something is going wrong with the climate, um, but, but still might be leaning less progressive, sure, uh, just, just sort of... Um, normalizing certain kinds of uh, debates about uh, the environment um, in, in the way that has been done by the, the gay rights movement, for instance. You know, like just 
if you start seeing uh, uh, people of the same sex kissing on TV more regularly, it just becomes normal. You, you sort of realize uh, this is just a part of life. Um, and that, that has helped uh, the gay rights movement make great strides over the past uh, couple of decades. Um, so uh, similarly, I think if environmentalists could make more jokes about themselves um, and about the environment uh, in mainstream media, uh, that would be really helpful. It's just, it, you know, it would make environmentalists more relatable. Um, there's, a, there's a, a comedian I talk about in the book named Phyllis Diller, who was a wonderful cutting edge mm. comedian in the 1950s and 60s. And um, she said one of her great lines is, uh, you know, I start with self-denigration and then I move on to the den denigration of everyone else. Um, but the point there is if, if you start with some self-mockery, some, some undermining humor about yourself, and in the case of environmentalists, that might entail, um, you know, acknowledging how, uh, how sanctimonious we have been in the past, um, then, you know, you're, you just come across as more human and you can say more difficult things um, with greater effectiveness. Well, Aaron Sachs, uh, for people not watching, you certainly have very, I have to say, you have very impressive eyebrows. You remind me a little bit of Groucho <laughs> Marx, which... Um, Thank you. I'm not sure if you can rival Marx for his humor, certainly for his eyebrows. Perhaps <laughs> you might end with um, a joke about the environment, as dark as you want. Make us laugh, make us cry. Um, a joke specifically about the environment? Uh... About the end of the planet. Tomorrow, <laughs> maybe, or the next week. Um, so there's actually a joke, uh, an old joke that I heard when I was growing up uh, about how um, a TV announcer comes on and says, uh, look, it turns out that the world is going to end tomorrow. There's going to be a flood. It's, it's, it's one of those situations where, um, you know, a comet is, is hitting in the ocean and uh, all of civilization is going to be flooded. So... Uh, the religious leaders come on TV to, to say what their response to this is going to be. And um, the Pope gets on television and says, um, OK, listen, your, your local priest is going to be holding confession all day. Please go confess your sins uh, before the apocalypse. And uh, the, the head minister comes on TV and says, uh, listen, go down to your local church. Um, all of the congregations are going to be getting together for uh, group therapy. Uh, we'll talk this through. Um, and then the chief rabbi uh, gets on TV and says, listen, go down to your JCC right now. Swimming lessons for everyone. Yeah, I had to win with a, a rabbi. And what would you do, Aaron, um, if the world was going to end tomorrow? <laughs> I'll tell you what I would do. I'd go to Kentucky Fried Chicken because I know it's not very good for you. But if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow, you might as well have a, a good matter. final meal. What would you do? <laughs> um, I don't know. Probably watch a lot of stand-up comedy. <laughs>